Father, God of all glory, you have given us access through Jesus, your Son, to you. And we come now with the ability to even address you as Father, to to know you in this way. This is mind-blowing, Lord. What a gift you've given to us. We thank you for Jesus, our joy and, and our focus in this life and the next, your focal point of your redemptive work and the shining display revealing your glory. We see everything in the face of Christ. We see your love. We see your purpose. And Lord, we love what we see. We pray now as we look into these verses that we would see you as well, that you would meet us here and and through your Spirit's power, open our eyes and stir our hearts to respond to you, that we would be more the people that you have created us to be as we go, even more than when we came. Hearts overflowing with joy and captivated by you with kingdom purpose as we leave, Lord. That is our prayer. Thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. My Father's House is what I titled the sermon. My Father's House. I don't know if you can see as you, as you watch through the screens, this is a picture of the Temple Mount right here. You can see the wall. Uh, this is the eastern wall right along here. Um, and then this is the Dome of the Rock. Uh, as much as your eye is drawn to that abomination, you can just wipe that off uh, and picture the temple there, okay? Picture the temple, God's presence descending there on that place, and our story today takes place there. That, that's where it happened, in actual location, okay? So it's helpful sometimes to have a visual and be reminded that's Jerusalem, In a a modern day, so you've got some high-rises up here. Uh, But in Jesus' day, it's the same place, same location, same walls, same stones in many of those uh, places. And uh, the difference is that there would be a really tall temple in view, the focal point of it all, the house of the Lord. So let's pick up in verse 39 of chapter 2, and we'll we'll just kind of move through these verses. I wanted these to come together this week, even though these last couple of verses are, are the closing uh, part of, of our previous passage, because they hand off together well. So childhood glimpses is what I'm calling this, this little section here. Childhood glimpses. Let's see how this unfolds. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. That's a kind of amazing verse, a couple of verses. So uh, they're, they're wrapping up. Remember, they brought Jesus as a, a newborn here to the temple. They dedicated him and uh, in the temple, went through the purification process and sacrifices. And now uh, Simeon and Anna have both prophesied and, and there's a stir and this child is, is, is the Messiah. This is the one. And this, verse 40, is just an incredible verse. Three things jump out here. That Jesus grew and became strong. That has an emphasis here mostly on a physical aspect. He's a real baby boy. He, he grows like other baby boys. And he became strong. He was strengthened. 
And then it says this, he was filled with wisdom. Filled with wisdom. We struggle here because oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think divine, but we don't often see enough of the humanity in, in Jesus. He is, yes, divine. He is truly God and truly man. And so how they come together can be very tricky and confusing. This says that he was filled with wisdom or increasing in wisdom. And so we're going to see this later on, how this all unfolds, but it's important for us to note this. And it says that God's favor was upon him. The favor of God was upon him. Uh, the echo of so much of what we've seen already in these passages. Uh, greetings, O favored one, right? The Lord has, has chosen you to marry and others along the way. Favored of the Lord. What's fascinating when you think about the favor of God upon Jesus is he is really the only one who ever deserved the favor of God, the grace of God. In this case, his rightness, righteousness, sinlessness was the object of God's favor and blessing. And it was the only human being who has ever lived in that way on the face of this earth. God's favor was upon him. So, I want to fill in the gaps. I call this uh, glimpses into the childhood because we really only have two points along the way where we drop in and, and learn about some of the things that took place when Jesus was a child. There's very little focus here. Um, one uh, is not in Luke. Matthew actually builds this out in chapter 2. Tells a story about the wise men. Jerusalem, wise men, King Herod. Hey, tell me, Herod says to the wise men, where the child is so that I too may worship. Wink, wink, right? That's not what Herod wanted to do. They find Jesus, they bring their gifts, and then they depart another way. Uh, Joseph is warned in a dream to escape, to leave. And so under cover of darkness, they flee to Egypt because King Herod goes now and kills every male child in the region two years old and down because he wants this so-called king to be eliminated. Well, God preserves his chosen one, and out of Egypt I have called my son. So the return comes. Upon Herod's death, Joseph is given a dream. It's safe to return, and they return now up to Nazareth, where the home would be also a fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would come from Galilee. So a lot happening in Matthew 2 Luke does not say anything of this in his gospel account. That's not a priority for Luke as he gives his narrative. It was for Matthew, and that's one of the benefits of seeing the different gospels coming together. We see more of a timeline built out. Some have asked, why is there so little focus on the childhood of Jesus? The truth of what we are to have of Jesus' childhood is given and preserved right here. And the answer is very little. The focus of the gospel writers, were, they weren't concerned about the childhood years of Christ. They were concerned primarily on his person and his work. Who is he? What did he do? And so the bulk of their emphasis comes into his work. I mean, we're covering years and years of the life of Jesus with these little glimpses. And uh, so Luke is going to give us now the glimpse that he desires us to see. It happens when Jesus is 12 years old. So we've fast-forwarded a long way from the night he was born. Now we're 12 years in, and we're coming 
to the, uh, the city of God, Jerusalem, for the celebration of the Feast of Passover. Okay, so verse 41 and 42. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Okay, so this was their custom. It was also the commandment of God. Uh, and this is one of the ceremonies, this is the ceremony where women were called to go as well. So this was a family event. Remember, if Jesus is 12, he has brothers and sisters by now as well. And so their family is going. And what we see here, they went up according to the custom, and we learn in just a verse or two, they stayed for the full week, which means probably a week on the way, a week on the return, right around there, five days you know, going, five days returning, and a full week there. This is like a three-week vacation each year that they would take, usually around the spring of the year. And so it was a rich tradition, uh, a, a something looked forward to, and certainly for a poor family, they had to plan for this. That's three weeks of eating. You have to have some money. You're, you're on the road. You're not home. And so they would save, and then they would journey together and go up to Jerusalem. So as uh, going up to the city because Jerusalem was, was up. And so you see this. They would travel with companions, usually relatives and friends, uh, folks that they know. This would be for safety's sake. Uh, they would not want to be on the road, um, isolated alone, a very dangerous path to get there. And as they climbed uh, toward Jerusalem, they would sing the songs of ascent. And many of the psalms that we're studying, even as we go through uh, men's and women's Bible study, we're, we're beginning to get close to these songs of ascent here that they would sing and rehearse uh, the heart of the poets and, and the heart of those who had journeyed together before. And they would share in this. What a rich tradition. Where the city of Jerusalem would swell by 100,000 people as they would come for this event. Now, it is significant that Jesus is 12. If you are a Jewish boy and you are 12 years old, you are preparing for what? Anyone? Bar mitzvah. 13 years old is a huge you know, mile marker in your journey uh, with your faith as a Jew. Jesus uh, was a fully established Jew in practice, and at 12, he was called to increasingly prepare and be ready for becoming a, literally, son of the commandment. That's what bar mitzvah means. Son of, bar, mitzvah, commandment, to become a son of the commandment. At 13, a Jewish boy would be uh, understood to be a Jewish young man. He would be expected then to take upon himself the full responsibility and authority for the keeping of the law. You've heard the term the yoke of the law. This is when the yoke would be set upon the back of a Jewish boy at age 13 in their bar mitzvah. Usually one or two years before that, boys, especially at age 12, would be encouraged to participate with their fathers in the sacrificing work, certainly going to Jerusalem to experience Passover work. He would have been brought along in a special and unique way at this age to experience this so that when he turned 13, he was ready to take this on himself. So we've got to see this. Jesus is experiencing Jerusalem once again, but not the same way. This is a special preparation experience, and, and probably he's having an eyewitness 
window into all of these workings. That's an amazing experience for a young man. You think of who Jesus is and then think of the Passover and the sacrificing of the lamb. Not just looking back to what God has done in the past, but seeing its fulfillment in Christ. It would have been an eye-opening experience. The, the day that we were in Jerusalem was the day that they celebrate bar mitzvahs. And we, just perfect timing, the Lord allowed us to have a, a, a glimpse into a, a modern-day bar mitzvah ceremony. And I jumped across the street, stood up on top of a thing, and got a little video for you. So here's a Jerusalem bar mitzvah of modern day. Okay. You see the tent? That's a hoopah. And then here's the young boy right there in white, 12 years old. There's the walls, one of the gates. We are on the uh, southwest corner of the Temple Mount. This is a big day, celebration. And they're walking up, moving their way up in to go toward the western wall. He will go up. He will uh, be celebrated. They lift him up and carry him around. It's, I mean, all the focus is there. And then what does he do? Well, he opens and he reads from the scroll to show that he is ready. He has studied. He is prepared and is then understood to be under the yoke of the commandment, of the law. So this is what Jesus is preparing for at age 12. All of this is in view and I think it would have been a monumental experience for him to go to celebrate Passover in this way. Now, uh, verse 43. When the feast ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they, did not, uh, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Okay. So there's some interesting things that happen along the way here. The full week has ended. They have been there. Just imagine if you're Jesus. You have experienced the discovery and the joy and the worship of this week of Passover. And it's time to head home. A day's journey. They, they head out. Uh, now, Typically, when you're traveling in a group like this, uh, the women and the children would go first. And uh, someone made a joke. They would have to carry a, a lot of the things and provisions and things. So they're out, out first. While the guys, they got to just hang in the back and chat. And they were talking. Questions about the law and discussing all the way. So think about how this could happen. Jesus is 12. Well, of course he's with Mary, right? And, and the children. He's with Mary. He's a child still, Joseph would think. He's way up front. He's not worried about that. He's talking with the men. But Mary's up front with all of the kids, probably all of the other kids, and she's thinking, oh, he's 12. Of course he's with Joseph, with the men. He's in the back. And they travel all day. They go a full day. 
And then they discover as they look around, where's Jesus? Where, where is he? And then they begin to raise their voice. You can hear this. The, the, have you ever lost a child? It's petrifying. One time, Jenny, when she was young, uh, was in a hotel. It was like a 40-floor hotel in Chicago. And her mom had a stroller and uh, the other kids and stuff. And so Jenny was there, and the elevator doors opened, and she pushed Jenny in and then reached to get the stroller and everything in, and the doors closed, and there's Jenny. <laughs> Gone. What do you do? 40 floors. How do you even know where she is? And so uh, Jenny's dad was running frantically up the stairwell, stopping at every floor, looking, growing. And finally, the elevator came all the way back down, and there's Jenny just standing there. <laughs> she wasn't supposed to talk to strangers, so they didn't, she didn't do anything. But oh, the panic of that moment. Where is he? Maybe a little marital dispute? Could be. Joseph and Mary, they were not sinless. Might have been a little tense there. Hmm. One of the things this shows us is that, in fact, Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus is trustworthy. Imagine having a 12-year-old who was sinless. What would that be like? Can you imagine having a child who was sinless, who was completely trustworthy? Jesus was trustworthy in such ways that they could just say, go for it, Jesus. You just go, go explore, come back. He would obey, all, you know, be back by two. He's there at two every time. He was trustworthy. So initially, the fact that they didn't see him or they thought it was with someone else wasn't a big deal. But then th this becomes a big deal because this is not normal. It's not normal for Jesus to, to not be there. And so you're begging the question here. It, uh, Jesus stayed behind. His parents did not know. What is this? What's happening here? Some suggest, in fact, that Jesus is being disobedient or disrespectful to his parents. Some suggest this was just carelessness, that he just didn't know, or he was forgetful. Uh, one of those people that can't seem to keep track of time. Here's the deal. Days go by. It's not that. If this was sin, if this was disobedience and disrespect, Jesus is completely unqualified to die to pay for the sins of others because he has to pay for his own. So it's, clearly it cannot be that. What then is this? What do we make of this? Jesus has chosen this. I believe this is a pure and purposeful decision that he has made. A statement. If, if to no one else, then to his parents, to his father, to his mother. This is a pure and purposeful decision that he has made to be there even though he knows it's time uh, for them to leave and go back. Now, relief and rebuke. Let's explore these a little closer. After three days, verse 46, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, let's see. Uh, when his parents saw him, where am I at? Yes, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Just pause there. Let's do a little math here. 
They go a day's journey out. That requires a day's journey back, a full day. They come back, they don't find it. We're two days in. And as you read the text, I'm pretty sure that this, this, this reads that they searched then three days in Jerusalem. So we're either looking at a total of three days or a total of five days that Jesus has been missing. Um, I'm inclined to think it's five days, three full days of searching in Jerusalem without finding him, and then they find him in the temple. Where would you go? The playground? McDonald's? That's where I'd go if it was Ethan. I'd be like, he's, he's at Taco Bell, probably somewhere looking for some fast food. Where do you look? Well, here's one thing that we can see. The first place they did not look was the temple. That was, it's almost like the last place they looked. They looked everywhere. They shook that city looking for their child. And then they came to the temple. That's where they found him. One of the fears in this day was uh, slavery. We're talking Roman rule. The slave trade was uh, still quite lucrative. And if you could kidnap a 12-year-old boy and sell him at that age, you have a full life to sell. And that was a fear for parents in this day. Imagine, what if Jesus has been sold into slavery? What would we do? Think of the feelings that Joseph and Mary were going through. Oh, it would have been horrific. They find him sitting among the teachers in the temple, listening and asking questions. Huh. He is sitting He's sitting among the teachers. This is a significant thing. He's not just back off, you know, leaning up against the pillar. He is full engaged. He is in the circle, there with them, sitting down. And he has been there for days. This is what he's doing. Listening, learning, soaking up the word as it is taught, and then asking questions asking questions. If anyone has studied um, Jewish tradition and uh, kind of the, 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 the work of teaching and, and educating, you know that the art of questioning is essential to it. In fact, uh, Jesus was a master at this. Every Jewish rabbi would work at this. Jesus was unbelievably good at this. The rich young ruler, remember, he came, a good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? How did Jesus respond? Do you remember? Why do you call me good? And then he went on to explain an answer. But he he began with a question. He would begin with a question. The Pharisees come and they are trying to trap Jesus about taxes. And they say, do you think it's right uh, that, that we should pay taxes to Caesar? And what does Jesus do? Do you remember? He pulls out a coin and he asks a question. Whose face is on this coin? Well, Caesar. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Boom! The Pharisees hated his skill at this, and I believe it was something that was tremendously sharp even at the age of 12. So here's what we've got to see. The astonishment, the amazement of these teachers, possibly even Gamaliel, right, who trained up Paul, he could have been there in the mix. Some of these very men would be those in a number of years who would be plotting to kill Jesus. 
They were amazed at his wisdom, his answers, his questions that sought to put it to the heart of the matter. He always engaged at the level of the heart with the law. Why is this the law? What is the goal of this law? What is the heart? And they were amazed. Day after day after day, they, they, they sat with Jesus at age 12. What an amazing thing. All who heard him were amazed at his answers. This has become kind of a spectacle. And here comes mom and dad. Oh, there he is. Whoa, look at all these people. What's going on? And he's in there doing his thing. Wow. This is, in fact, my friends, the Spirit-empowered God-man being himself. Imagine what that would be like. The Holy Spirit in him, the Word of God in him. Oh, think of the memorization that he would have already completed by this point as a, as a Jewish boy. Now, if you were Mary, what would you say <laughs> at this point? You've been looking, you've been afraid and it's hard in moments like this. It, first you want to hug, then you want to spank, right? Listen to what she says. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. It comes as a rebuke. She comes and she rebukes Jesus. What are you doing to us? Why have you done this to us? been looking for you. This is great pain. We're talking days of searching for you, Jesus. Hmm. It's an understandable tone and it's an understandable uh, rebuke. Here's the problem. It's unfounded. It's unfounded. Listen to who, uh, how Jesus responds. I titled this, I know who I am. I know who I am. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. There's a window here. Every time we hear his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, I just can just picture Luke sitting with Mary as she tells Luke, this account, and he writes it down. This is Mary sharing this moment, this experience. Years later, she remembers this keenly. She rebuked Jesus. And his response was, so I mean, where else would I have been, Mom? Been with my father in his house. Now, we have sung songs. We heard from Glenn and Adam the call to worship. Better is one day in your courts, Father, God, than a thousand elsewhere. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. King David writes, even the birds find a place to make their home there. They want to be there like I want to be there. And so you can just feel the heart of Jesus, this young boy, just with the poets and the prophets. I love to be in your city. I love to be in your presence. I want to be with you. Father, my father's house. I don't think it should be lost on us that Mary says, your father and I, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he responds with, my father, his house. 
It's not disrespectful, but I believe it is quite clear. If there is a question of allegiance, if there is a question of authority, greatness, the, 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 the place of greatest allegiance for Jesus already at age 12 is his father. His father. Great clarity, purpose. I think Jesus understands in a greater way now, this is who I am. This, this is my role. This is why I'm here. This is what it's all about. Passover, that's about me. Th th this whole thing is about me. I want to know more. I want to learn more. I want to discover more. He has a hunger for the word, a delight in the teaching of it. I think this is a clear statement that he's saying, I am the son of God. I am his son. That's, that's a reality. They didn't understand this. I think Mary, looking back, certainly would have understood a lot more clearly what this truly meant. What was this? Well, sometimes hindsight is twenty twenty. Hmm. But what's he going to do? Because his parents are like, son, it's time to go. Jesus obediently submits and returns to Nazareth with them. What you don't see is Jesus breaking one of the most important commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. Honor them. And so he does. He joyfully submits to them. They depart. They leave. And I think Luke puts that in there to highlight the fact that Jesus is not in sin here. This is not a sinful display for Jesus. This is a righteous statement of his identity as the Son of God. Now, the humanity of Christ. This last tag on verse, <laughs> this is a sermon in itself. It's an amazing verse. Look at verse 52. Luke writes, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, at 12, continued, as we saw the first Verse 40 suggests that he was increasing in these things. He was becoming stronger, increasing in wisdom. He continues at age 12 to increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. How is it possible, if Jesus is God, that he can grow in wisdom? Doesn't that question beg? I thought he knew all things. The all-wise, the omniscient. How can Jesus, who is God, grow in wisdom? Friends, this is where we come, and I, I would just help us identify this flaw in our thinking sometimes. We rightly see Jesus as God, and it's good. If we don't, we're heretics. However, if there was a tipping of the balance or a tipping of the scales, we, in our thoughts of Jesus, more often lean to see divinity and less humanity. And what I think is important is that we see the balance of both. He is fully God, truly, and truly man. He is a human being, a boy, 12 years old. Hmm. It's the meeting of two spectacularly mysterious realities of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is divine and He is human. 
This is what Uncle Bruce wrote in his excellent book. It's out there on the top shelf. If you haven't read it, you definitely should read this book, The Man Christ Jesus. It, it talks a lot about the humanity of Christ. And this verse is certainly on display in that book. Jesus' wisdom here in this verse is not a function of his divine nature. It's the expression of his growth as a human being. Okay, think of this. Uh, in the incarnation, when the second member of the Godhead came and took upon flesh, Philippians 2, he emptied himself, or the kenosis, he, he set aside the use of his divinity and added upon himself humanity. He, it was a humbling work. He humbled himself to become that which he created. And in doing so, he laid aside the use of. Now, here I never forget my professor at Moody saying this so clearly. He did not give up. He gave up the use of. Okay? So a, if you say he, he lost or he, he gave away his divinity, then we're also heretics. We don't want to do that. He chose not to use those aspects of his divinity so that his full experience as a man would be legitimate. And he would know what it's like to go through life like we go through life by experience. He would know what it's like to discover and learn and grow, to gain wisdom from studying the Word. It's my wife's car. It has this, this button when you drive it. It's called the Eco button, okay? Now, I like saving on gas, okay? But there are times when I don't want to push the Eco button. I want the full range of power that little engine can produce. And it's pretty amazing. It can get up and go. But here's what happens. When you push the Eco button, it sets aside the use of some of the attributes of that engine. They're still present. They're just not employed. And the goal is to accomplish greater gas mileage. It's still there. It's, it's, it's able to function if I push the button off. But for a purpose, we push the eco button and we save on our gas. That is, in a sense, what, what this, this God-man has done. He has laid aside the use of his divinity. And how then does he heal? How then does he learn and know? It's through the Spirit. Just as we are called to follow the Spirit, to, to depend upon the Spirit, to read the Word in the power of the Spirit, to be illumined and enlightened by the Spirit, so too Jesus did. It's an amazing thing. As he studied the Word in the power of the Spirit, wondering, he learned facts, truth. As he sat under his father's teaching and asked questions of his mom, he learned as a normal human being would learn. He delighted in God. He responded from the heart with joy and worship, rejoicing, memorizing Scripture. He, in that sense, walked this life, this work that we're about right now, he walked that out in perfection. He grew in favor with God and in man. His experience of walking with God was made full. He didn't grow in increasing obedience or lessening disobedience. That's not what that means. It means that every day was a, a fuller and more complete experience with his Father. And that favor was built out day after day after day. But it wasn't only vertical. 
It was horizontal as well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did this perfectly. What an amazing thing. I couldn't help but put this verse in at the end because these verses that we read about Jesus are the echo of a description of Samuel, the prophet, as he grew. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. It's important that we see the connection between the New Testament and the Old. So critically important to see how they come together and they focus our hearts to Jesus, the fulfillment of all of the Old. Celebration, the sacrifice, the victor. So our response this morning, I'll just give two things here, two things. One, Jesus' identity. The identity of Jesus. He is the Son of God. When He says, I, I must be in my Father's house, he, he doesn't just throw the word Father around lightly. He truly means Father, i.e. eternally. He is my Father. I love to be with Him. Think of the intimacy of the Godhead and then how that would show itself in Jesus' life. He often would withdraw to desolate, lonely places so that he could what? Be with his Father. To be with God. He loved to be in the house of the Lord. His identity is clear. He is the great I Am. Second, Jesus' example for us. He delighted to come. He delighted to sing he delighted to read and learn and grow and worship and obey and respond. Friends, this is not just who he is. It's the life he lived is an example for us. It's only by grace that we can be set free from our sins and launched into this kind of fellowship with God to have him, to know him, to be in his courts. And this example that Jesus lives for us calls us forward, does it not? To come, hearts on fire for the Lord. What else matters? You, you don't see a word about where Jesus slept, how he got food. Compared to fellowship with the Lord, that was his food. All the other things, there's just little details. The focus, the goal, the joy of his life was intimacy and fellowship with the Father. And that should call us forward today. That can be an example for us as we go through this life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this gift we have. This fellowship with You restored through the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. We thank You that we have been forgiven not by our work or things that we have sought to do to pay for our own sins and offenses against You, but by faith trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank You for Your great display of, of wisdom and sovereign kingdom work in sending Jesus to be the sacrifice that would atone for the sins of Your people. We pray that our lives would be lived out like Jesus lived His life out with this overwhelming longing to be with You, to talk with You, walk with You through the day. We thank You for the, the intimacy that we know because of Jesus' work 
that has brought us together. Oh, Lord, you are so good. We worship you. We honor you. We pray that this week would be like Jesus experienced in that temple, that we would sit with your word and question and, and, and learn and, and grow and discover. Thank you for your spirit who is at work even now, landing your word in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.